Welcome to the teaching ministry of Rev. Daryl Baker, pastor of Christian Faith Fellowship. Pastor Baker is fulfilling the call of God on his life to preach the Word of God without compromise. Raising up disciples who through faith in God will have a powerful impact on our world. May you be blessed through the message that Pastor Baker has to share with you today. May God's very best be yours. Chapter 12, Luke chapter 12 is where we are leaving, picking up where we left off on chapter 11 on uh, last Sunday. We did not do this on Wednesday night because there wasn't a lot to cover in some of these chapters. And with the concert tonight, we would not be doing our last day's survival guide teaching. So we did that on Wednesday night. We learned about spiritual weapons. I'll tell you what, Wednesday night was awesome. I'm telling you right now. How many know Satan cannot use spiritual weapons against you? So if that rubs you wrong, go get our notes. Go study it for yourself. The Bible's clear. He only tempts you with that which is carnal, which is fleshly. But guess what you have? Spiritual weapons. Guess who the superior one is? You are. Satan cannot. The Bible's clear. Cannot tempt you beyond what is common to man, which is referring to that which is in the natural or of the flesh. He can't. God's limited him. Because if he could, I'll tell you what, he could have a whole lot more effect on your life than what he needs to have. But in Jesus' name, thank God we have spiritual weapons. So if you didn't get it, go get the notes and go back and get that study. It was good. Today we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 12 on the life of Jesus. As we've been going through each chapter, I've been pointing out key things that have just the Holy Spirit's been pointing out to me to share with you as we go through this study. Because of course you could touch on a whole lot and you don't have time to go through every little verse and touch on every little thing that's said. But I'm going to pick up on one of the most key things in chapter 12. And it actually begins in verse 22, although we're not going to start there. We're going to start in verse 29 to cut to the chase of what we got to get to today. But it, ref- it reflects a key issue about not worrying. Not worrying. And I want you to see this just so you realize it's actually in there. I am going to show you the first part of verse 22, and then we're going to jump down to verse 29. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, underline it please, do not worry. Now he goes on and talks about, you know, about your life. But do not worry. Now let me ask you a question. Does the, let, me, let me talk to you who are parents, who, who have kids, all right? So if you tell, tell your child, do not do this, does that mean it's an option? If you say, do not do this, does that mean that they can take it as, well, I get to or not? This is an option. I can do it or not. When you tell a child, do not do something, what would that be? That would be a command. Thank you, Kathy. That would be a command. Why? It's for their benefit. You're not trying to destroy your kid's life by telling them they can't do something. You're actually trying to protect them. And you're trying to help them. Listen to those words again. What did Jesus say? Do not worry. Let me help you. That's not an option for the believer. Now, you can make it an option. If you make it an option, in a sense, you're in a form of rebellion because worry is a sin. What he tells you not to do is a sin. Sin people just think of in the context of doing something really nasty or bad. But let me help you. Sin is nothing more than missing the mark. You got to remember this. When you think of sin, think of a target. Hey, guys, we're going to be going to shooting range out in here before before long, just so you know. So I'll just throw that out there. But, But you take a target, right? You take a target. You have a bullseye in the target. So is the goal just to hit the outer part of the target? No, it's to hit the bullseye. What if you don't hit the bullseye? You miss the mark. You miss the mark. You miss the goal. Sin is missing the goal. Missing the mark. What's good for you? So guess what Jesus said again? Do not worry. What's that mean? It's a command. The reason it is because if you made an option, then clearly it could be good for you. Some of you will get that after lunch. You listening? If he made it an option, then that means it could be good for you. Because he only wants good for you. The reason he gives you commands is because if he made it an option, that would mean that either one you choose then could be good for you. Choosing to worry is not good for you. So he didn't make it an option. He made it a command. You choose to disobey the command, you're in a form of rebellion. Just like your child. If your child doesn't do what you say not to do, if they go do it, they're in rebellion. Like it or not. Now rebellion doesn't mean you hate your parent if you you go do what they told you not to do. My my parents told me stuff not to do it, and I did it anyway. But it wasn't because I hated my parents. You want to know why? It's because I was a little ignorant kid who thought I knew better than my parents. And I know none of you think that about you and God. I know we all think we know more than God, but the truth is God knows more than us. 
And he cares about us the same as a parent cares about their child. And the reason a parent says, don't do this, darling, is because what? It's going to hurt your life. If I say it's okay, you got an option, then they got to both be good. So I, I've taught on this for years. I've actually done messages on it called the do nots of the Bible. The modernists don't want to preach it, nor will they, nor do they want to even talk about it. Because the modernists don't want to have any quote-unquote do-nots ever told to a Christian because somehow that's a form of bondage. No, no, honey, that's called liberty. If I don't do what God said not to do, I liberate myself from something that's going to hurt my life. Guess what's the most detrimental thing to your life as a believer? Worry. Worry. Worry affects you in so many ways. Worry affects every part of your being. Not just a part of you. Worry affects your spirit man because it actually now suppresses your spirit man. Worry doesn't come out of your spirit man. Worry comes out of the soul. So if you walk in worry, you suppress your spirit man. You're pushing him down. Now you just get back to sit down, shut up. You're not going to rule today, which is where your victory's at, by the way. And so you're telling your spirit man to shut up. So it affects your spirit man. Number two, worry affects your soul because guess what it does? It gets you into all kinds of weird emotions. And all kinds of stuff in the context of the realm of the soul, even reasonings. Worry will cause you to think about stuff that will never happen. Well, what if this happens? What if it don't? Well, yeah, but what if it does? But it may never happen. You listening? So it affects every part of your soul. But guess what else it affects? It affects your body. Worry affects your body. Doctors have proven. If you live in worry or stress, why, why all the anti-stress medications today? By the way, medications isn't the answer. Sorry, but God is. God's got a perfect peace he's given you. When you choose not to do what he said not to do, guess what you can do? You can relieve yourself of that stress and all that frustration. But if you walk in worry, doctors will tell you there's actually a deadly chemical being released from your brain that's going into your body. And it's affecting your health. So you got to understand, I, I know a story of, uh, Brother Hagin shared a story of a minister he knew. And the guy was just, I mean, he, he's in his 30s. I think he was like, um, am I getting that right? I think he was like 38, 39, latter part of his 30s or something. And I mean, physically, he's a wreck. He's an absolute wreck. He goes to a doctor, he gets fully checked out, I mean, multiple times. And this doctor said, honestly, there's no one thing wrong with your body as far as like a disease or sickness or anything. He said, you just flat wore yourself out through worry. You have the body of a 90-year-old. Wow. At, like right at 40. You have the body of a 90-year-old. You'll die within the next six to eight months. But not because there's anything physically attacking your body. It's how you've lived. He said, I will bet, knowing that you're a minister, you've taken on all the care of your congregation. Well, yeah. And all the care about all the stuff going on in your church. Well, yeah. And he said, I'm going to tell you what that's done. He said, all that care weighing on you has destroyed your body. It's destroyed you mentally. It's destroyed you physically. And God sent Brother Hagin to this minister. He said, you better tell him if he doesn't repent for worrying. When's the last time you were told to repent for worrying? If you heard me preach on it, you heard it here. If you haven't heard it, what's a sin? A sin is missing the mark. What are we supposed to do? Repent. What's repentance? Turn away from it. Turn away from it. If you don't repent for worrying, guess what you're going to do? You're going to keep worrying. Because you chose not to turn away from it. So he literally went to him and said, Son, I'm telling you, the Lord told me if you don't lay down... All these cares, I guarantee you what, the Lord said, you are coming home. Just like this doctor said, you're going to be leaving this planet way earlier than, than you should be, you know, at the age of right almost 40 years old. And thankfully, the guy did. He, he, he got Brother Hagin's help and he learned the Bible. Isn't that amazing? A minister who doesn't know how to not worry. Well, I got a word for you. If a minister that you're walking with doesn't know how to not worry, you don't need to be walking with that minister. Because they can't teach you how not to. But I'm going to tell you right now, Jesus said clearly you and I are not supposed to what? Not, to, not supposed to worry. Why? For our benefit. Say our benefit. Look at verse, 20, uh, verse 29. Notice, and do not seek. So here's a key to not worrying. Do not seek what you should eat. By the way, just so you understand, because I'm just for the sake of time, we got a lot to cover. I'm not leaving the context of what he started off with. He's still talking here. If you go back to verse 22, he hadn't stopped talking. So he's still talking about worry. Say so he's talking about worry. Notice what he says about this. Verse 29. Do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind, a mind filled with care. Anxious means you're full of care. You're allowing all the things of life to weigh your mind down. 30. For all these things the nations of the world seek. Nations of the world mean all the different ethnic, ethnic groups. All, all the people of the different... doesn't matter where they're from. They all, obviously in the context of the natural, they all seek these things. 
They're just after stuff. They focus on stuff. They focus on what they have, what they don't have. Christmas, like Kathy said, is a big time. This happens every year at Christmas, man. People get all frustrated, worried, and upset, and all full of care because they can't buy this, or they can't buy that, or they can't get their kids this, or get their kids that. Let me help you. It ain't about those gifts. It's about the gift, Jesus Christ. Greatest gift you could ever have. Notice, all these things the nations of the world seek. All these what? Things, 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 things. What are they doing? Seeking them. Seeking things, after things, focus on things. Notice this, your father knows that you need these things. So how many want to see your father help you with these things? Yes. All right, watch this. You ready? 31, but seek the kingdom of God. Amen. And all these things shall be what? Amen. Guess what part of the kingdom has within it? The things. Yes. Guess what's available in the dominion of the king? Those things. Amen. You don't even have to try to get them. They become a byproduct of you just simply putting the kingdom as a priority in your life. If the kingdom becomes a priority, you're going to have all those things. Why? Because you're going to do things the way the kingdom does. And if you operate and function the way the kingdom does, guess what? The kingdom has no lack. I have not seen a place in all the Bible where we find Jesus talking to the Father when he was here saying, Father, how's the shortage going on up there this year? We're going to be able to catch up. We're going to be able to get things taken care of. We're going to be able to finally get all those needs met up there? Are you kidding me? I said, are you kidding me? So guess what? You have a choice. You can live and worry by seeking things focused on stuff, or you can make the kingdom of God your priority. 31, and all these things will be what? Read on, please. 32, do not fear, little flock. See, what does worry bring with it? Fear. Why? You're focused on stuff. You're focused on what's going on in the natural. Watch, do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to do what? To give you what? Shout it at me. And in verse 31, he said, with the kingdom because all those things. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 33, notice this, you ready? Some of you are not going to like this. Sell what you have, give alms, provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasury in in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let me talk about a couple things really quick here in chapter 12. First of all, God doesn't want you to worry. But you'll live in worry as long as you don't what? Make the kingdom your priority. If you seek the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, 33 says it this way, seek first. So the priority is the kingdom. It doesn't mean I'm not responsible enough to know that i got to take care of my family, but I'm going to do it by looking to God. I'm going to do it by looking to do things God's way, not man's way. That includes using wisdom. You know, wisdom includes knowing how to have a budget to live by. If you don't know how to have a budget to live by, you're not walking in wisdom. The Bible says wisdom is the principal thing. So a lot of people just say, well, I'm just trusting God to meet my needs, but they have no idea what they need to have even to live on every single month. That's not wisdom. Wisdom teaches you to utilize the abilities of God given to you to understand how to be able to operate in this life and to know that God can continue to help cause you to do what? Prosper and move forward. But he can't do that. I knew a guy who literally at one point in his life came from nothing to a six-figure income and is now back to little of nothing. And I'm going to tell you why. Because he wouldn't use wisdom. Wouldn't use wisdom. His wife was a great person at budgeting things. He would not let her do that. He continued to take care of all the money. And he already proved he couldn't do that. I got a word for it. If you can't take care of your money, you better learn how. Because we're going to talk about in a minute. That obviously, walking wisdom means I'm a good steward over what God entrusted in my life. Are you still here? See, a lot of people kind of throw out the practical with this. And they just think, yeah, I'm believing God. But I just haven't seen all those things added to me yet. You might not be functioning in all the aspects of the kingdom yet. Because the kingdom understands knowing how God's principles work. And that's what I function by in every realm of life. So seeking the kingdom means I make the dominion of my king my priority. You listening? The kingdom is the dominion of our king, Jesus. So I take the dominion of my king, Jesus, and I apply that to every area of my life. And this area here is called what? Finances. So if I want to function in the context of having needs met, what's the first thing I got to do? I got to get my finances subjected under the dominion of the king. Are you listening? If you don't, you're going to continue to deal with, struggle with stuff, 
and having or not having and going up and down with the economy. You don't have to live by the world's economy. You can live by the kingdom's economy. So verse 33 says, so what you have. So are you and I supposed to go home today after this service and do an immediate garage sale and sell everything we got, give it all away? No. He's talking about being focused on stuff. Lester Sumrall has said most Christians have far more stuff in their home than they need. He said we go buy a bunch of stuff so we can have garage sales to sell all that stuff so we can go buy a bunch more stuff so we can turn and have another garage sale and sell all that stuff so we can go buy more stuff. Are you still here? God's not against you necessarily having stuff, but he's against stuff having you. When all of a sudden you got to have more stuff, you got to have. You got to have. You got to have. You got to have. Oh, I got to have that. Oh, I got to have that dress. Oh, I got to have that gun. Oh, I got to have that say. Oh, I got to have that. Oh, I got to have that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. See, if you got to have, guess what your focus is? The world. You listening? No, I already got what I need. Preaching better than you, amen. And I already got what I need. I got Jesus. Come on, I got new life. I got eternal life. I got God himself. I got the provider himself. If I've got God, I got all I need. Now, if I learn to function by his kingdom principles, all that I have needed will be added unto me. But we got to function under those principles of the kingdom. So what must I do here to walk free from worry? You got to make the kingdom your priority, not stuff. If stuff's your priority, you're going to live with worry. I will promise you because you're going to go up and down with this world, with this world system and economy. And I guarantee it ain't a good way to live. That's why he said in verse 33, sell what you have, not meaning sell everything you got. Quit getting focused on having a bunch of stuff. Amen. Amen. I said amen. amen. Verse 34, because where your treasure is, what's your treasure? Your treasury, yes. it's another word for that, or your wealth, your money, your finances. Where your treasure is, guess what? There your heart is also. So if my heart is set on the kingdom, I got no problem getting my money subjected to the kingdom principles of God. Because if I do, I'm going to get the benefit of it. Isn't that right? Now, this doesn't just deal with money. You understand what I'm saying? To seek the kingdom means I'm subjecting myself. Here's a better way to say it. Can I make it simpler? Let me make it simpler. God, you're smarter than me. You know everything about my life. You know everything about what's going on in my future and what's going on right now. You know what I need tomorrow and you know what I need today. And if I just choose to make you my priority every day, submit my life under you every day, do what you tell me every day, guess what? I already know what I have need of. You're going to take care of it. Yes. You're going to show me how to provide it. Yes. You're going to lead me, lead me, guide me, direct my steps, and even bless me in ways I didn't even think was possible. Yes. But I'm never going to get caught up with the things. You listening? Yes. Because it's all about doing what? It's all about keeping the kingdom as a priority. So in these verses, he's telling me and you that God's kingdom must be your priority. You have to be submitted under the dominion of the king. What about your mouth? What if you don't submit your mouth under the dominion of the king? You'll curse yourself. Death and life's in the power of the tongue. You listening? So don't take it just as money here. That's a key problem because a lot of people, as you're going to see, they think they can serve God and mammon. You can't. But you got to understand, if I just simply make the kingdom my priority, I'm going to function under the dominion of my king. Why? Because you're smarter than me, God. You're smarter than me. You know more than I do. You know stuff about what's going to happen tomorrow that I don't know. And if I just stay submitted under the dominion, your dominion, come on, doing this the way you actually want me to do it according to your word, my tomorrows are taken care of. You'll add all these things unto me. Anybody amen on that? Realize that this is an absolute. And therefore, I will have no longer what? Worry. Won't worry. But what if finances get tight? Not worried because I already know I'm functioning under the dominion of the king. All these things will be added unto me. Chapter 13, he goes on here in chapter 13. If you'll talk in a little bit further about the kingdom, drop down to verse 18. There's not a lot here to deal with in chapter 13. He does deal with an issue of uh, actually a spirit of infirmity that he actually uh, gets a woman loose from, which is, again, just a physical ailment. Thank God for healing. We've already touched on that. He does touch on the end of this chapter about the narrow way. You know, Matthew said it this way, narrow is the gate. Difficult is the way which leads to life. Zoe, life as God has it. Ready? I don't like this verse, but it's in there. Few will find it. I'm going to be one of the few. How about you? 
So narrow is the gate, meaning I got to do this God's way. You can choose. You can choose to do it God's way, which guess what? God doesn't have a broad way of doing stuff. He has a narrow way of living life, which is a good way to live. Right? What's the broad way? Hate everybody. Have unforgiveness. You know, retaliate. Get back at everybody. That's the broad way. What's the narrow way? Forgive everybody. But see, walking in the narrow way gets you into what? Zoe life. Sadly, few will find it. But may we be some of the few. I'm going to do everything I can to pass you to help you be one of those few. In Luke chapter 13, though, at the bottom part of Luke chapter 13, not all the way at the end, down to verse 18, he brings up a key about the kingdom again. So we just learned that the kingdom's got to be my priority. I need to know how does the kingdom function? How does it primarily work? So he gives this parable in Luke chapter 13, verses 18 and 19, about how this kingdom functions. How does it work? He said here in verse 18, what is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it? What shall I compare it? How shall I compare how the kingdom functions to something in this earth? See, Jesus as a great teacher knew I got to keep using things that they would understand to be able to get a truth across to them and into their heart. 19, the kingdom is like a mustard seed, which a man took and he put in his garden and it grew and it became a large tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Now, let me say something about the mustard seed here. Because the Bible even says if you have faith as a mustard seed. I have a question. If faith as a mustard seed means the size. I've got a little vial back there that I got when I was in Israel of actual mustard seeds from Israel. They're tiny, tiny, tiny. So, if a lot of people think of this. If all i got to have is faith as a mustard seed, like that little tiny seed, you can move mountains. Why aren't, Christian moving, why aren't Christians moving mountains then? Well, evidently, we don't even have that little faith. Yes, you do. God gave you a measure of faith. So it's not about the size. The mustard seed is not about the size. Charles Capps one of the only guys that ever figured this out. He found out that of all the seeds on the planet that you can cross-pollinate, whether the seeds, there's a seed you can't. Mustard seed. Can't cross-pollinate a mustard seed or it won't grow. You can't take faith and mix it in with your actual belief and understanding of what you th- think faith is and see it work. Faith is an absolute. It works one way and you can't mix anything else with it you got to do faith the way God says to do faith. Get out of love, your faith doesn't work. Don't act on your faith, your faith doesn't work. You listening? So it simply means you cannot cross-pollinate faith with your own beliefs of how you think faith works and see it work. If faith ain't working, you're not doing it right. You're still here. So understand how the kingdom works. The kingdom's like a mustard seed that you plant. The large tree phrase there is actually not in a lot of the original text. It's only telling you this about the kingdom. How does the kingdom function? It grows. Meaning what? It doesn't happen overnight. So many Christians today, they just want everything overnight, but that's not how the kingdom functions. You know why? It takes a while to recondition you to understand how to think differently and operate like God operates. How do I do that? I got to keep planting the truth of God's word in my heart because faith doesn't come by what I heard last week. Faith's coming by what I'm hearing today. And if I do, if I consistently keep planting God's word in my heart, guess what's going to happen? The very things of the kingdom are going to continue to flourish in my life. But they don't flourish for those who stop planting. So what he's saying here is the kingdom doesn't work this way. You go to church one time and you're done and you don't ever have to go back again. Because you're just going to be able to walk in everything God has for you by doing whatever you want. No, you're going to have to function the way the kingdom functions. How's the kingdom function? Guess what? You got to keep planting and planting and planting and planting. Because the way the kingdom works is it's a continual growth system. And it works over and over and over again. Not a one-time thing. You got to keep planting the things of God in your life. You got to keep planting the word of God in your life. There's people who once got the word of God planted in their life concerning healing, had faith, but years later because they stopped listening to teachings about healing, now they don't have that faith anymore. Why? Because faith comes not by what you heard back there 20 years ago. Faith comes by what you're hearing today. See, this is a challenge for humans. Huge challenge. You know why? Because we don't like hearing the same thing over and over and over again. But that's how the kingdom works. That's how the kingdom functions. You know why? Here's why. You ready? You ready? Because God doesn't change. What God said yesterday is the same today. What God spoke as truth yesterday is the same truth today. You don't have to try to refigure God out today. You don't have to go find a different seed. You don't have to try to figure out, well, I know God did that back then, but how's he doing this today? The same way he did back then. He don't change. What, what you planted and saw work in your life back then will work in your life today. But you got to keep planting it. 
You got to keep growing it. The kingdom is not a one-time growth thing. That's what he's saying. It's not a one-time deal. You keep growing and developing in the context of what the kingdom of God has, and it never stops. And after you do so, it becomes such that you can do what? Help others. The birds of the air will nest in its branches. You'll be able to be a help support to those who are starting to learn how to walk in the things of the kingdom. Because you'll become so strong in it, you'll be able to help others to do so. But the tree that needed the water to grow is the same tree that needs the water to live. You didn't hear that. The tree that needed the water to initially grow, that little seed that then grew up, that mustard seed that grew up and became a tree, it needed water to do that, still needs water to live. If it's going to stay alive, it's still got to be what? It's got to be watered. So understand this about what we're talking about here in relationship to this chapter 13. What are we talking about, Pastor? You got to understand how the kingdom works, meaning what? It's continual aspect of what you do of planting and harvesting and planting and harvesting and planting and harvesting. It helps you grow. You become stronger to the degree you can help others. But you don't ever stop watering what you've planted. Can I get a better amen? amen? So that is how the kingdom functions. It is a continuous growth and development system. Chapter 14. If you go over to chapter 14, I would love to talk about the, the uh, parable of the Great Supper, get into all that. We're not going to have time today. I'm going to go down to verse 25. I'm going to go down to verse 25. Because the Great Supper is simply, you know, if you don't know about the Great Supper, it's real. let me just show out there real quick. It's just Jesus saying, I've invited everybody to come sit down at this wonderful feast. Hallelujah. So, hey, servants, go out. This is me and you. Go out and share the gospel. Go out and invite people to come to this great supper, right? But guess what? People gave excuses. Well, I can't come because I just bought a piece of property. I got to go look at it. I got to go take care of it. Well, I can't come because I, I just got married. You know what that's like. You know, I'm a newlywed. So I don't have time to go to church, hear the word preach. You know, now I got stuff to do with my family. Well, I can't come because I just started a new business and I got to tend to my business. So all those people refused God's invitation to come and prepare for the supper. And you know what the actual context of the, of the scripture says about that relationship to God? He was angry. You know what? He said, oh, I accept all their excuses. No problem. No. He said, I don't accept their excuses. They won't get to partake of my supper. They won't get to partake of my... And then he tells us to now go out and do what? Go out in the highways and the byways and compel the poor and everybody else to come in here. Those people will eat none of my supper. Supper. Make excuses to not go to church and not go into the and not to go on with your walk with God. Develop your walk with God. You're not going to partake of the supper He has for you simply because you made excuses not to be a part of it. But thank God we can be. Amen. And in verse 25, He then goes into talking about right out of that parable. He goes into talking about disciples. It's one of my favorite things to teach on because it's the heart of what the body of Christ is really to be all about. Tommy and I, Tommy Winslow, pastor oversee. Hey, you can be excited with Tommy and his church today. They moved into a new facility today. If you saw their other facility, you'd be excited about the new facility they got moved in today. God's good. Amen. Been there, done that. We've been through that many times. We're going through one last transition. Say the building's paid for. And when we step in that building, guess what we won't have to do? Bring in extra chairs. We'll have plenty of room for everybody. But I'll tell you something was really cool. We were talking about this the other day. Tommy said, you know, pastor, he said, you were talking to me several months ago about God's focus not being winning the lost, but making disciples. I said, correct. He said, I don't know that I really believe that when you told me, but I do now, because everything I study in the Bible says exactly that. I said, it's simple. I said, when you talk about making a disciple, you're not excluding salvation. Because you can't make a disciple without getting them born again. But guess, back to the target, right? So if the target, if the bullseye of the target is get them saved, get them saved, get them saved. Well, the moment you get them saved, you know what most Christians do? You walk away. Because you hit the target. If that was your goal, just get them born again. And if that was the goal of Jesus, how many know Jesus before he left, talking to his disciples, guess what his last words would have been? Go get everybody born again. But he didn't. I said he didn't. You can look up the word every way from five days from now until Sunday. Now, five ways from now till Sunday, I promise you, every Greek scholar tells you the word disciple means exactly what it means, to become one who learns from another and develops and lives like them. And what did Jesus say the goal was? Go make disciples. Now, before you can make a disciple, hit the target, what do you got to do? You got to get them born again. We're not excluding salvation because that's a given. You got to get them saved to make a disciple of them. But guess what? Just because I got you born again doesn't mean I'm done. I'm not done. 
I'm here to make a disciple out of you. If you're at Christian Faith Fellowship, guess what I'm here to do? Make a disciple out of you. Guess what you're supposed to be doing with one another? Making disciples. Helping each other develop, become a disciple. So Jesus talks about what it takes to be a disciple of his. In Luke 14, I teach on the aspect of what the Bible teaches of seven keys, what Scripture teaches about being a disciple. Here's where we actually find three of them. Three of those keys, just off of the words of Jesus. Luke 14, 25, great multitudes went with him, and he turned and did what? He turned and did what? So who's speaking here? Jesus is 26. If anyone comes to me, does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, underline it, he cannot be my disciple. Didn't say he couldn't be born again. Now, if you want to live less than a disciple, you can, but that means you're not going to live the life of Jesus. Because being a disciple means I get to live like Jesus lived. Hallelujah. If you want to live like Jesus lives, that'd be like worry-free, carefree, Great faith, mighty miracles, living a life of of true success in all you do. If you don't want any of that, don't be a disciple of Jesus. What if you do, notice it, you got a what? What did he say, pastor? He said, if you do not hate your father, mother, wife, children, even your own brothers and sisters in your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Cannot. Jesus said it. Don't look at me cross like that. Jesus said it. He said, you can't be my disciple if you do not hate your father, mother, brothers, sisters, even your own life more than mine. So you know the word, we know God's not telling people to hate people. Jesus wouldn't go, well, you hate them, but you love them. No, he wouldn't do that. So the word hate means what? You got to love them less. How many are supposed to walk in love with everybody, including your enemies? Guess what you can't do? Okay, so point number one here, all I'm going to do is touch on three little simple truths that he reveals about being a disciple in this chapter. Point number one, I can't put anybody in my life before God. Now, most people say they would not, but I will promise you, some people won't come to church if their spouse don't. You put them before God. You put them before God. Well, I'd come to church, but my spouse won't. So when did the Bible ever say you go to church only when your spouse goes? Bible didn't say that. I go to church because I love God, love my spouse. Now, I'm not talking about if your spouse is at home and they're suffering in body, you need to help them, take care of them. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about they say, I'm not going to church today. Okay, well, neither will I. Well, then you're not a disciple. Thank you for all your amens about that. Well, my boy has a baseball game this Sunday, Pastor, so we won't be there. Okay. Your baseball game is more important than your God. Well, he's probably going to play for the major leagues. You want to know the odds of that? So you want to know the odds of that? So where's his, where's his future in? His finances are, are wrapped up in a, in a pro, ball, pro ball league somewhere? Most of those guys are so messed up. Not all of them, but some of them, you know. So messed up, it ain't even funny. My point is to say this. I'm, I'm just telling you what Jesus said, right? Don't stare at me like that cow looking at the new gate look. Some of you are looking at me like, oh, I don't know if I've ever heard this before. If you have been, if you've been here, been taught this before. I can't love anybody. I can't love my wife more than I love Jesus. If Kathy decides not to go to church, say, well, you've got to show up. You're the pastor. Who said? Who said I have to? Where's a have to verse? Because I'm the pastor. I've got to show up. I can ditch church same as anybody else. There's no have to verse in the Bible. You listening? Well, we won't pay you. You don't decide that. Well, yes, we do. No, God decides that. God will see to it I don't get paid if I don't serve him, do what he tells me to do. But people don't do that. I don't live based on what people do. I live based on what God tells me. Amen. Thank you for all your amends about that. Amen. I'm not hired and fired. You couldn't hire and fire Paul. You can be disobedient to the call. I'm not telling you that I'm going to obviously do well if I skip church like anybody else. But, you know, everybody thinks that the pastor has to be there. Oh, why do I have to be here but nobody else does? <laughs> I'll get off of this subject because I can see you're already kind of not liking what we're sharing here. Before lunchtime, I want you to be happy so you come back and hear Brandon tonight. They'll put you back in a good mood. Praise the Lord. How many of you want to be a disciple? Yes. You can't love people more than you love Jesus. Right. I can't love my wife more than I love Jesus. I can't hurt, let her determine whether I serve God or not. I can't let my kids determine whether I serve God or not. You kidding me? You should be teaching your kids how to serve God as you serve God. Amen. 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 He goes on to say, can you handle the rest? Of, I don't know if you can handle the rest of the verses. Are you ready? <laughs> You can't. 27, whoever does not watch, bear his cross and come after me cannot be what? Point number two, if you do not what? If you do not bear your cross. 
You cannot be his disciple. What's bearing your cross? What's bearing your cross? Okay, so real simple. What was Jesus here to do? Go to the cross. That was his whole purpose of being here. If he didn't go to the cross, he didn't fulfill the will of God for his life. What is bearing my cross? Fulfilling God's will for your life. If you're a disciple, you're not trying to fulfill your will. You're trying to fulfill his. Everything about your life is subjected as a disciple to say, God, is it your will for me to start this business? No? Okay, I won't do that. I'll do something else. God, is it your will for me to actually marry this person? No? Why? Oh, because they're not a believer? Okay, I won't marry them. But many will. Oh, I love them. I'm going to get them born again. Who said you're going to get them born again? If you're getting people born again, I didn't know you became God. I ain't never gotten anybody born again in all my life. You know who has? God has. He's the only one getting born again. He does that through you. But it's not me getting them born again. That takes a lot of pressure off me as a witness. I'm not trying to get you born again. I'm trying to help you understand, know what God has for you. God will get you born again if you want to be. So understand point number two here. He clearly says that you and I have to do what? Take up our cross or we can't be his disciple. What's that mean? I got to fulfill God's will for my life. I got to look to God and know am I doing what God called me to do? If I am, I'm his disciple. Amen? Amen. Verse 28, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first, underline this please, and count the cost, whether he's got enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundations not able to finish, all who see it, they begin to what? They begin to mock him because he wasn't able to finish the project. Saying, verse 30, this man began to build, was not able to finish. What's he talking about here, disciples? 31, what king going to make war against another does not what? Sit down first and do what? Here, underline consider. Consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else while the other is still a great way off, he has to send a delegation and ask for conditions of peace. We never ask for peace from our enemy. Verse 33, so likewise. So all of that to say, so likewise, notice this, whoever of you, underline it, does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Number three, you got to count the cost to be a disciple. If you don't count the cost, you won't be. If you don't count the cost of what it means to live like Jesus, now I want to live like Jesus in every way I can. My thought life, come on, my words, what I speak, what I do. You kidding me? Greatest way to live on the planet. Tell me a better way to live than like Jesus lived. Somebody please tell me right now. Tell me a better way to live than like Jesus lived. But you're not going to do that without being his disciple. So I got to be willing to do what? Forsake all. Counting the cost here doesn't mean go build a building, but make sure you got enough to finish it. He's talking about you building your life as a disciple. So if you want to build yourself as a disciple, you have to stop and think about this and say, have I actually forsaken what can hinder me from being a disciple? If I've got things in my life that would hinder, hinder me from becoming like Jesus, I got to do what? I got to count the cost. I got to get rid of that. I got to be willing to forsake that. Notice the statement again. If you're not willing to forsake all, you can't be my disciple. So he's not telling you to give up everything you got. He's saying you've got to be willing. You got to be willing to let go of anything that would hinder you in reaching the goal of living like Jesus. Things in your life can hinder you from being like Jesus. How many know that? How many know there's friendships could hinder you from that? Are you listening? How many know there's decisions you could make in life that could lead you down a pathway that could lead you further away from Jesus and not closer to him? So I got to be willing to forsake anything in my life. But how do I do that? I got to sit down. Say sit down. You know what that means? That means you're going to sit here and think about this. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to consider this decision before I make it. Before I jump into doing anything about my life, I'm going to sit here and say, Father, I need to take time to think about this and say, is this going to hinder my walk with God? That's going to hinder my walk with God. Am I to move all the way away from the church that you drew me to and the shepherd you drew me to because I have a better job offering over here in this other state where I can make more money. I don't have any pastor there that you've called me to, but I got a job. So I'm going to go to that job. You better talk to God and say, am I willing to forsake what I have spiritually to go for a job? You listening? There was a guy with Brother Hagin years ago in his church. He said, Brother Hagin, we're leaving. You are? Hate to see you go. God bless you. May God help you. Where are you going? Well, we're going over here to this other town about two hours away. How come? I got a better job offer over there. Oh, who's your shepherd going to be? Don't know. We'll find something to go to. Really. 
Didn't your son get healed in this church? Yeah. Didn't your marriage get restored in this church? Yeah. Didn't you learn and grow spiritually how to use your authority in this church? Yeah. So now you're just going to leave and go off and don't even know who your shepherd's going to be or what you're going to learn or are you going to be taught the truth or not? You're moving for one thing, son. You're moving for a job. I'm not your dad. I'm not your father. He is. I'm not telling you what to do. But have you even asked him? Have you talked to him about it? Well, no. Don't you think you ought to? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so he did. And he prayed about it. He came back several, uh, several weeks later and said, you know what, Brother Hagin? We're not taking that job. I'm staying here. Why? He said, I began to think about that. And he thought, man, I'm going to walk away from the thing that's helped me grow, develop, become more of what I wanted to be in my life than anything I've ever had. And I'm going to walk away from that. And the Lord nudged me and said, I never called you over there. You listening? Yes. Within six months, he got a promotion at his job. Wow. He wound up making more at the job that he was actually at than what he got had he taken the other job. Yeah. <laughs> you can say amen if you want. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. What are you going to do? Sit down. Say, sit down. sit down. That just means you better quit just running through life and making decisions. A disciple doesn't do that. A disciple doesn't run through life and make decisions. What do they do? They sit down and they think about this choice I'm going to make, this job I'm going to take now that I will be working all of my life on Sundays and Wednesdays, so forget church. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? I, you got to talk to the Father. I'm not your dad. This is a free country. You listening? Nobody's in bondage here to force, be forced to stay here. Um, you got to know where God's called you. You got to know what God has for your life. But a disciple is what? They're willing to sit down first before they make the decision to move forward with any plan and say, God, is this what you have for me? Say, a disciple, a disciple. always talks to God first. Always talks to God. And when you do, you got to be willing to do what? Forsake anything he tells you to let go of. Amen. And if you do, you're going to live a better life because of it. Amen. Any, any better amens than that? Luke 15, we'll move on. Luke 15, sometimes when you preachers know, you preach is kind of like hard sledding for a while, but you finally get through and you break out and woo! Here we go again. Praise the Lord. Luke 15. Watch this. I love this story. It's one of my favorite in the Bible. It is actually, when people say one of your favorite, yeah, because it really reveals a divine truth that a lot of people miss. It's the, it's the actual story of the prodigal son. Prodigal means wasteful. <clears throat> Remember the story? Two sons. Say two sons. Yes. Younger, older. Right? Younger son, older son. The younger son does what? Of course, he's younger, so he thinks he knows more than everybody else. So the younger son says, Dad, I want my inheritance. I want to leave. I want to go off and do my own thing. So what does the father do? He says, okay, here's your inheritance. Here you go. And so he leaves and he takes off and he goes to another land, right? Goes to another uh, country. And he actually winds up wasting all of what he had. Lost it all. Lost it all. Now he's down to basically as a beggar, uh, no place to even get food. He's working for a guy who he's feeding his pigs. And he said, man, if I just even could eat the pig slop, I'd be doing pretty good. But my owner won't even let me eat the pig slop. Imagine that. I've asked, he won't even let me touch the pig slop. And then he gets to thinking. He said, you know what? I'd be better off back home as a servant to my dad. I know he won't take me back. I've totally failed as a son. But at least if I went back and he accepted me as a servant, I'd have better food to eat than what I got here. I'd have a roof over my head, place to sleep. Come on, clothes on my back, food to eat, just being a servant of my dad. So he goes home thinking, I'm just going to be a servant. I want you to see this. This is called the value of sonship. So here in Luke 15, if you're with me, say amen. amen. In verse 21 in Luke 15, actually back into verse 18. He says, I'll arise, go to my father and say to him, my father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. At least he acknowledged he missed the mark. And I'm no longer, underline this verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. No longer worthy to be called your son. What's the key here to the parable of the prodigal son? The value of sonship. The whole key to this parable is the value of sonship. Where you find your value and worth in. What you find your value and worth in. It's found in sonship. Not what you have. Not what you do. He made a mistake. He goofed up. He lost all of what he'd had that his dad had given to him. And therefore, verse 19, he says in his own words, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. If I went back and told my dad this, maybe he would make me like one of his hired servants. So he's thinking this through. 20, so he arose. Came to his father. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against your sight. Notice again, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me a servant. Just make me a servant so at least I got food to eat. Clothes on my back, a place to sleep. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe. Don't you know this freaked him out? He didn't expect this response. I said he didn't expect this response. I don't care how bad you bloat with God. As long as you don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you would know if you did that. You're going to get a response from the Father if you repent and come back. You didn't expect. That's a good response. His father said, verse 22, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put on the ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, bring out the fatted calf. Glory to God. Guess what we like in Texas? Fatted calves. Why, tasty, man. Woo! Good brisket. If you go to Rudy's, man, you get the fatted brisket. It's a whole lot better than a plain brisket, I promise you. Bring out that fatted calf here and kill it. See, I already got you thinking about lunch. I shouldn't have done that. Let us eat and be what? Tell me out loud. Come on, let us celebrate. Let us rejoice. Let's have a party. For this my son was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. They began to be married. And his older brother, his older son, uh, his, his other brother, his older son, was in the field. He came, drew near to the house. He heard the music and dancing. What's going on? Where's he been? Where he was every day out working for the father. 26, he called one of the servants and he asked one of these servants, what does this mean? What's going on here? So he said to him, verse 27, your brother's come because he's received him safe and sound. Your father's killed the fatted calf. Now you would think he would be excited that his brother's home again. But he's not. 28, he was angry. Why? They both had the same problem. They both had the same problem. Both the younger and the older son had the exact same problem. It wasn't wasteful living. This is all about the value of sonship. It's all about where you find your value in life. Notice he was angry, would not go in. Therefore the father came out and pleaded with him. 29, he answered and he said to his father, Lo, these many years, underline this please, I have been serving you. What's he finding his, his value in? What he does. He's not finding his value in the fact that he's his son because he's been birthed into this life as his son. He's not finding value in that anymore. He's finding value in what he does. I don't care how bad you mess, it with, mess up with God. If you're born again, you're still a son or daughter of God. Not because of what you have or haven't done. The value in sonship ain't based on what you've done. It's like the statement God gave us Wednesday night. Sin made me who I was. The blood made me who I am. I don't make who I am. The blood did. The blood made me who I am. I'm a son or daughter, not because of what I've done. Which also means I have an inheritance, not because of what I've done. Now, if you go off and live wastefully, you're going to miss out on your inheritance. But you have an inheritance, not because of what you did, because you're a son or daughter of God. Notice this, 29, all these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. Why did he not enjoy his inheritance? Why did he not enjoy his inheritance? Why did he not enjoy his inheritance? You have not because you asked not. It was available all along. He just never asked. You know why a lot of you aren't enjoying your inheritance? You've never asked. You've never asked the Father for what you have available by faith. 30, but as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. He said, son, you're always with me and all that I have is what? Yours. yours. Watch this. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now. Yeah. They were both living out the same lie. It affected him in a different way. Amen. The one son who had done wrong, say done wrong. He was basing his value based on what he did. Because he had done wrong, what did he say? I'm no longer worthy to be your son. But was he worthy to be his son? Yes, he was. Why? Because it ain't about what you do. It ain't about what you haven't done. It's about what Jesus did. You're not worthy to be called a son or daughter of God because of what you have or haven't done. You're worthy because of the blood of Jesus. That's what made you brand new. You may have a flesh you're still allowing to rule your life, which you can learn to deal with and overcome. But as a spirit being, you're perfect. The Holy Spirit couldn't live in you if you weren't. Your worth and value ain't based on what you do or don't do, darling. It's based on what Jesus did for you. And so it was with the other one. Because the other one, obviously one did wrong and thought he was no longer worthy because obviously he didn't expect to get a party thrown for him. Right? But the other son who had done everything in his eyes right 
was just as upset about not having a party because obviously his value and worth is in what he had done, not what he actually was. As they say, I've always been your father. You've always had this available. You just never asked. You don't get it because you're worthy. You get it because you're my son. Hallelujah. So realize the value of sonship in the parable of the, uh, the parable of uh, the prodigal son. A lot of people missed that point. They were both identical. It just responded in different ways. Luke 16, moving on. You still with me? Come on, we're almost done. Only two more chapters, which means only two more hours of teaching, and then we'll be good to go. <laughs> I always like to throw it out there just to see who responds. <laughs> that way I know you're awake too. You're paying attention. Two more hours? Luke 16, you get into what's known as the parable of the unjust steward. So I talked about this a while back in one of our services. You and I own nothing. We own nothing. You own absolutely, oh, no, I own a home, I own a car, I own this. Well, okay, you want to take that with you into eternity? Well, if you own it, why can't you take it with you into eternity? You own it. If you own it, you get to decide what you do with it. You listening? I'll tell you why you're not going to take it with you into eternity. You know why? Because you don't own it. You don't own anything. You're a steward. God made us stewards. And from the very beginning when God gave the planet to Adam and Eve, he didn't, he didn't, they didn't own it. They were just stewards over it. And a good steward who obviously honors what the one who, who gave them what they have takes care of what they've been given, they're going to get the benefit of that, that stewardship. So you get to the end of this quote-unquote parable of the steward, and I want you to see this, verse 10. Jesus said, he who is faithful in what is least is also what? Tell me out loud, please. Underline it. He who is faithful with me, he who is faithful in what is least. Your turn. Now, follow after me. You ready? You ready? He who is faithful in what is least, you say it. Is faithful also in much. You say it. Notice this. He is unjust in what is least is unjust in what is much. See, it's up to you as to your stewardship over what God's already given you that determines whether or not he can grant to you more. God's not going to grant more to you if you're not faithful with what you have. Why would he? Because all it's going to do is destroy you. Amen. Verse 11. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Or the true riches was added, meaning what? What's really valuable? The power of God, the anointing of God, the things of God. So what's he saying here about unrighteous mammon? What's unrighteous mammon? It is simply money or wealth, possessions, that can never make you righteous. You can't pay for your righteousness. Can't pay for your salvation. Jesus paid for it. Blood of Jesus paid for it. There's no natural means on this earth by which you can pay for your right standing with God. The blood did that. So for me to put my faith in any aspect of what's on this earth as something that can make me more right with God or more right in the world or more right in the sight of man is an absolute lie because none of that can make you righteous. You have it because you got to use it. Right? You got to use what's available on the planet to survive and function. But what God's saying is it's mine. It's not yours. If you're a good steward over what I entrusted to you, guess what? You've proven to me I can trust you with the true riches, Amen. with what's really valuable. If you're not faithful with what little you have in the context, now I'm not like a little, like I only got a few bucks. He's talking about the stuff in this world is little compared to the anointing of God. Little compared to the power of God. Little compared to the presence of God. Don't compare. Right? But if you can't even be faithful with the stuff you got, how can I entrust you what really is valuable? Notice this, verse, 15, uh, verse 12. If you've not been faith, found faithful in what's another man's, because again, none of this belongs to us, then who's going to give you what's your own? Who's going to entrust to you what you can actually have use of as your own? 13, no servant. Listen, no servant can serve two masters. Say impossible. impossible. No servant can serve two masters. Not possible. He's going to hate the one and love the other, or at least be loyal to the one and despise the other. You may not hate God, but you can't serve God and mammon. So again, you can't get focused on context, quote-unquote, owning stuff, and it's all about what you have. What about back to the prodigal story? What, what about your value and worth? So what you do is how you gain your value and worth in life. If what you do is how you gain your value and worth in life, you don't own that. You don't own what you do. But if that's where you try to find your value and worth, then guess what? You're going to wind up missing out on the true value and worth that God has for you, which is found only in Him. And what he has done. 
So you got to understand this. You and I, to be good stewards, simply realize, I own nothing. Say, I own nothing. You own nothing. You're a steward of what God gave you. If you honor what God gave you in a way that's biblical and right, guess what? You're going to get a whole lot more than just what, you have to, what he has to offer in the way of natural things of this earth. Aren't you glad about that? But you cannot serve what? Cannot serve God and mammon. So there is no, a lot of Christians think they, they, they are living kind of an in-between ground, but the truth is Jesus said you're not. You're serving me, God, or you're serving mammon. There is no in-between. You're not on the fence. You know, you cannot serve, cannot serve God and mammon. You can't be on the fence on this. You're either serving me by recognizing you're a steward over everything I gave you, including the new life I entrusted to you, or you're serving mammon. Which is it? Because you can't do both. Can't do both. But if you serve me, you're going to get a whole lot more than just financial stuff and natural stuff. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to, I can entrust you with some stuff that I'll guarantee you what, it'll blow your socks off. Literally. I'm serious. In some ways. Amen. So you and I need to learn to be what? A good steward over our life, over our words, over your actions, over what you own. Because you can't serve God and mammon. Can't do both. Last chapter, 17 for today. What chapter are you reading today? 18. 18. Very good. It is the 18th. Praise the Lord. Here, Jesus warns about getting offended. I wished I had time. Oh, if I only had about 45 more minutes on the clock. I don't have that kind of time, but I will just point it out. Uh, notice this, Luke 17, uh, 3, 17, 3. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Now, it doesn't mean if he doesn't repent, don't forgive him, because Jesus said you're to forgive. But it does say if somebody has wronged you, it's not wrong to go to them. What's rebuke mean? Unveil the wrong. The purpose isn't to say, look what you did to me. Why'd you do that to me? You shouldn't do that to me. That's not a forgiving heart. You're going because they've done wrong. It's going to hurt their life. So the intent is to try to go reveal to them what's been done wrong so it doesn't continue to hurt their life. But no matter what, how many know you're supposed to forgive them? What if you don't forgive? Verse 2, it would have been better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea that, that one of you should offend one of these little ones. That means if you lead other people into sin because you're unwilling to walk in a forgiveness towards others, it would have been better basically for you have not to have been born. Walk in forgiveness, amen? amen. But I want, to, I want to cut to the final part here, the chase of what we're going to deal with, because I wished again I had time to touch on. Go read it later. It'd be good to reread it. Verses 11 through 19. How many remember the ten lepers? Yeah. Isn't this a powerful story? How many were cleansed? How many were cleansed of their leprosy? They were all cleansed, but how many came back? And notice what Jesus said. Where's the other nine? Meaning what? Listen, you got born again. He delivered you from the very disease of sin itself. Why would you not now give your life to Jesus in gratitude to him and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because if you do, he's going to do a whole lot more than just cleanse you of your sin. The leprosy issue here does refer to a healing, but that's not the heart of it. The heart of what this whole statement is, leprosy was a type of disease that was very obviously deadly. So what's the greatest disease that we know that's the most deadly? Sin. Sin nature. Because you're already walking in death, right? You need new life. And we're saying is that if you get cleansed of that sin nature, born again, what should you do? You should want to come back and give your life to Jesus, bow down before him and say, thank you. Thank you. How can I serve? Hey, glad you came back. Praise God. I got a whole lot more for you than just getting you free from sin. Where's the other nine? Where's the other nine? They're going to still live in some aspects of what's affected them from the sin, but you're not. You're not because I've got a work to do in your life. I wish I could preach on that. Can you tell I'd like to preach on that? But I want you to go with me down, please, to verse 26, because we're living in the last of the last days. We are going to touch on, in closing this morning, what Jesus said about the day you and I are living in. The last of the last days. I think that's why it's a priority for us to deal with. Luke 17, 26, Jesus said about these last days, notice this, as it was in the days of Noah... So it will also be in the days of the Son of Man when he comes, when he appears. It'll be just the same. Be just like the days of Noah. What were the days of Noah like? Glad you asked, 27. They ate, they drank. Drank there doesn't mean get drunk. Just means they had, they, you know, they, 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 they actually got caught up with eating and drinking, lifestyle of what we do. I mean, no, most of us don't go on vacation. Kathy and I don't usually go on a vacation do much other than eat and drink. Coffee. 
We don't drink out coffee, so, you know, whatever. Like, a lot of times on vacation, it's the only time I usually drink a soda. It's on vacation. I don't normally drink sodas, you know. Go on vacation, go to a movie, I might drink a soda or something. Listen carefully. They ate, they drank, they married wives. Is it wrong to marry wives? No. They were given in marriage. Is it wrong to do that? No. No, but they did that until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, listen. Here's the focus. What was the problem in Noah's day? Noah's trying to get them to help him build the ark. Right. Didn't mean, how I many you know they're going to have to eat to do that? Right. He's not throwing out eating here because obviously they don't eat. They don't have the strength to build the ark. What's he pointing out here? There was a, a different focus here. Their focus wasn't on building the ark and doing the work of God. Their focus is about what they wanted out of life. What they wanted to do. And he said, it's going to be just like that but when the Son of Man returns. 28, he went on to say, likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot. Uh-oh. They ate, they drank, same thing they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. Is anything wrong with buying things, selling things, planting things, building things? No, we're building a, we're building, a building for God. Nothing wrong with that. You listening? Only because God told us to. Notice 29, but on the, notice, on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven, and it destroyed them all. There's coming a day, ladies and gentlemen, when the door to the ark is going to close. And God's going to say, you had your opportunity. You could have got on the ark. How do you get on the ark, by the way? How do you get on the ark? How do you, how do you live like Noah did and not like everybody else in Noah's day? How do you live like Lot did and not like everybody else in Lot's day? So let's go to Noah. How do you live like Noah did in his day, like him and his family, and not like everybody else? You help build the ark. What's building the ark? The very body of Christ, the work of God, being a part of church, being a part of what we do to help people get to know Jesus. Get in the ark, get into safety. You listening? How about Lot? What was the difference in Lot's day? What was the deal about Lot's day? How do we want to be like Lot, not like everybody else, obviously, that was in Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot messed up. Lot goofed up. He left, obviously, who he should not have left. He left Abraham. They should have never left. Their servants started arguing because they had so much stuff. Can I help you? Give the stuff away. Stay with the man of God who helped you to be able to get blessed to begin with. But the Bible says he went and vexed his righteous soul by going and living around this sinful absolutely deprived, I mean, depressed, I mean, totally depreciated society. I don't want to go there. I don't have time to talk about it. I'm out of time. But you got to understand something. Lot at least repented, come on, at the preaching of the angels. And he said, what? I'm leaving this and I'm going back to God. You know, what, you know what's going to happen today? There are going to be some in the world that are going to say, I got to get back to church. <laughs> but what about the ones that don't? I'm sorry. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, they won't turn from their sinful, wicked ways. And there's going to come a day that they're not going to have a chance to do so anymore. They had the opportunity. They chose not to do it. Are you still with me? All right, so you still with me? Notice this, verse 30 again. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is what? Revealed. It will be just like Lot. When Sodom rained down fire and brimstone from heaven destroyed them all. To be like that when the Son of Man is revealed. 31. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. Likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Meaning what? Don't actually come to Jesus and go back to the world. Turn from the world, walk with Jesus. 33, whoever seeks to save his life is going to do what? He's going to lose it. But whoever does what? Loses his life. Can I tell you what verse 33 is? It's a stewardship verse. It's a stewardship verse. Lose your life, meaning what? I own nothing. Listening? I own nothing. God owns it all. I'm just a steward. And if I'm a steward and do what he wants, guess what? I'm going to find true life. 34, I tell you, notice, in that night there will be two men. Now, the phrase men is actually added. There's a lot of people referring now to homosexual and all that. It's not what it's referring to. The word men is italicized. It was added. It wasn't in there. It's just saying there are going to be two in a bed. This is sad, but it's going to happen. Guess what? There's going to be two in one bed. One's going to be taken. The other's going to be what? Fact. There's going to be two that will be grinding together at work somewhere. One's going to be taken. The other's going to be what? That co-worker's going to disappear. There's going to be two in the field working together. One's going to be taken. The other will be what? And notice they answered and said to him, where, Lord? And so he said to them, where the body is, the eagles will be gathered together. What was he referring to? Those that are left. Those that are left. Those who are so caught up with the carnal nature and desires of what they want, they're going to hang around with all the vultures that are going to be here on the earth. But the ones that were ready, they're not. They're going out of here. So be like Jesus said, those who are not of Lot's day or Noah's day who didn't take serious their walk with God. Let's be busy about building the kingdom. 
And if we do, we'll be like Noah and his, and his uh, family. Hallelujah. If you're not living right, be like Lot. Repent, turn around, come out of the world, get right with God, walk with God like you should. You'll be good to go. And you'll take people with you. We pray that you are blessed by the message Pastor Baker shared with you today. For more spiritual resources that can help you in your walk with God, or to invite Pastor Baker as a guest speaker, just go to our website at cffchurch.com. You will find additional teachings by video, audio, and printed resources that will be a blessing to you. May God's very best be yours.